being on the border, that's it's, it's hard to believe, but that really is, you know, what what is the root of the problem is seeing people who uh, have been, you know, inculcated with the belief that English is the language of school, the only language of school, and so uh, we're we're working toward combating those ideologies of English only, and still promoting, you know, the idea of bilingualism and the cognitive advantage of just being bilingual. Hey everybody, welcome back to Highest Aspirations. I'm your host, Steve Sophronis. How are educators reaching English learners and bilingual students in a border district during a pandemic, both in addressing immediate needs for support and in looking ahead at the impact of learning loss on the future of instruction? What techniques can educators use to identify different types of bilingual learners and evaluate the effectiveness of their programs and instruction? How might we transform the subtractive model of schooling that is rooted in generations of an English-only mentality to celebrate bilingualism and encourage students to take pride in their native dialects? We discuss these questions and much more with Dr. Carolina Lopez. Dr. Lopez is in her 20th year in education and is a bilingual and ESL strategist at Westlaco ISD, located in the Rio Grande Valley in Texas. Prior to serving as the bilingual and ESL strategist, she served as the secondary English language arts and reading strategist. She has a Bachelor of Interdisciplinary Studies with a minor in bilingual education, a Master of Education in Reading, and a Doctorate of Education in Curriculum and Instruction with a specialization in bilingual studies. She is a Texas Certified Reading Specialist, Master Reading Teacher, and Principal. She taught for 16 years at the elementary, secondary, and post-secondary level. In 2016, she was named the Texas Association for Bilingual Education Secondary ESL Teacher of the Year. Dr. Lopez is also a published author in the NABE Journal of Research and Practice. She has served on numerous committees at the state level to address the needs of English learners and currently serves on the Texas Education Agency Assessment Educator Advisory Committee. As you'll hear in our conversation, Dr. Lopez is a fierce advocate for bilingual education in a region that has struggled with a fixed mindset on English-only programs, something which she sees as part of a larger issue that she refers to as la herida abierta, or the open wound, which she believes educators can help to heal. As always, we are committed to keeping you informed and inspired with the resources you need to help support your English learners. If you'd like to learn more about Elevation, contribute to this series, or just touch base, go to elevationeducation.com, or feel free to email me directly at steves at elevationeducation.com, and remember that Elevation has two L's. You can also subscribe to Highest Aspirations wherever you listen to podcasts so you know when new episodes are released. As always, thanks for listening, stay safe, and take care of each other. Carolina Lopez, thank you so much for joining us on Highest Aspirations. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. It's, it's great to be here knowing that uh, Deep South Texas is being represented, especially during this really cold weather. So thank you for having me. Yeah, we're uh, recording this podcast episode um, on Wednesday, February 7th. And uh, this this week is, is pretty wild down there. So, uh, you know, I wasn't even sure if you were going to make it. So uh, thanks for making it under such difficult circumstances. I'm glad you have power and, and you're safe and, and sound and warm where you are. Yes, thank you. All right, so let's get started. Um, you're where you are, um, and in many other places along the border, ninety um, percent plus of people are bilingual, and yet the support for bilingual education there is pretty low. Which I was actually surprised by when we spoke last to kind of prepare for this interview. 
And I'm sure many people listening um, probably have trouble believing that. So could you just briefly explain why you think this is the case to get us started? And then we'll dive in a little deeper. Sure. You know, this is something that I've been thinking about a lot lately, you know, being that I'm working in the bilingual department in our district. And you would really think that being on the border, we'd have this celebration of biculturalism, biliteracy. But, you know, this this area in deep South Texas, right on the border in the Rio Grande Valley, we've experienced a lot of trauma in our region. And um, that trauma, it's still with us. It very much is is here. You know, Gloria Ansaldúa in her book, uh, Borderlands, she talks about how La Frontera is, is La Rida Abierta. It's this open wound. And some of us just, we haven't healed. We have a lot of teachers, a lot of teachers who lived in a time where speaking Spanish was prohibited. My mother tells me stories about being slapped with the, you know, a ruler on her knuckles. And so when you have individuals who were born in this kind of era where speaking Spanish wasn't allowed, that trickled down into their children and, and only teaching them English so that they wouldn't, you know, struggle with, um, you know, not knowing the English language in school. And so that's just kind of carried on generation after generation. And being on the border, that's, it, it's hard to believe, but that really is, you know, what, what is the root of the problem is seeing people who uh, have been, you know, inculcated with the belief that English is the language of mm. school, the only language of school. And so uh, we're, we're working toward combating those ideologies of English only and still promoting, you know, the idea of bilingualism and the cognitive advantage of just being bilingual. Right. Yeah. And I want to dive into that next, how you're combating that. But I just want to draw a few connections because I think what you're saying, while surprising to many, uh, may be pretty familiar in terms of sort of this muscle memory that people have to teach the way that they were taught, even if they know it deep in their hearts that uh, it's not necessarily the right way. And there's so many parallels we can draw to that just with human nature and psychology. And the one that I'm thinking of now is, you know, while we're in the middle of this pandemic and remote school is still happening, hybrid school seems to be happening more. People are thinking about going back to school. And so what are people thinking about? How can we change education? But what's the big barrier there? The muscle memory, what we've been doing for so long, that kind of factory model. Um, and so the, 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 the bilingual thing and the sink or swim and the English only thing, I, I guess is, is, is similar to that based on what you're saying. And so it shouldn't be super surprising. But that being said, this is a mindset game, right? So you, part of your role, and you've said this to me when we, when we chatted last, was you need to change mindsets. How have you gone about doing that? And what challenges and successes have you run into? You know, coming into this position, that, that was my first charge. How do I to light the idea that being bilingual is a positive and that we can use our students' native language to help them learn a second language? And it's okay. Don't be scared as a to use Spanish in your classroom and to allow your students to use Spanish as well. So some of the things that we are doing is we have monthly newsletters that we send out and we have a section there where we celebrate bilingualism. And at first it started with celebrating, you know, famous celebrities that we know that speak more than one language. But, you know, recently we started, you know, we thought 
but let's celebrate the bilingualism here in our region. And so what we've started to do is we actually have a nomination process where people will say, you know what, I, I really want to nominate so-and-so. I know that, you know, I know their story. I know their story of being an English learner in this region. And so we've started highlighting individuals who uh, have been quite successful within our community and highlighting their profile in this um, bilingual spotlight, if you will, in our monthly newsletters. And we've received uh, quite some positive feedback. I'm really excited about it. We um, have gotten, you know, I, I kind of feel this little, me das calofrío, because I feel the person being interviewed just be really excited to finally be asked these questions and to be able to share their story. And then I know that when others read about their story, then more phone calls coming in saying, oh my gosh, Carolina, like that happened to me, or I thought I was the only one, or I feel that same way. So the newsletters is one way, but you know, something else that I do is I speak a lot of Spanglish, you know, I'll translanguage. Yeah, I've noticed una, it. I like it. Sí, me sale una palabra en español. And, and I, I like to do that because when I say this area is an area of trauma, you know, we were we were brought up with, eso es pocho, you know, don't speak like that. That's improper. That's not the way you speak. And so, you know, um, I think that someone who is in a position of influence like myself, who's got the degrees, the titles, the little two letters that... I didn't think would make a difference. People are turning heads and now saying, well, wait a minute, you know, la doctora is speaking like this. Well, wow, you know, I was told at home, you no debes de hablar así. Yes. Oh my goodness, you know, what is that gonna say about your level of education? And so I think the way that I carry myself, I think that also is a way of just kind of sending that message to people and saying, you know what? It's who you are and celebrate mm -hmm. it because language, is very much a part of your your identity. So I think those are the two ways that that I would say have been the most influential among of course a lot of other things that we do in our district to promote bilingualism and you know professional learning and all that good stuff that all of us in the field do with with our you know our stakeholders. Yeah, thanks for highlighting those too though. I mean, <clears throat> excuse me, the newsletter you know, uh, strategy isn't isn't really a new thing, but going from, I think sort of iterating from starting with, let's take some celebrities, which is kind of the big draw, right? And then saying, mm -hmm. well, wait a minute, we have people in our local community who we can highlight that would be really excited about being highlighted and then others could see themselves in their shoes, perhaps a little bit more clearly than maybe some celebrity. I think that's great. And then, um, you know, the idea of Spanglish, I, I think it's great. Like keep, keep it coming with the fact that someone can uh, use what they know and who they are and, and really express their identity while also um, being able to and very comfortably uh, use um, more, I guess you'd call it formal English, right? In situations that call for it, mm -hmm. but mixing them both in a variety of contexts is something that people don't really do very often, um, but I'm seeing it more. And I think it's great, you know, and from someone who, um, who I, you know, I, I learned Spanish uh, I was, I was a, 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 not a native speaker of Spanish and I, I learned in Spain and I was kind of trained in college, like Castellano, you know, and then I went and taught mm -hmm. in a, in a school district where I was surrounded by people from the Dominican Republic and Puerto Rico. And I was like, what is this? And I learned an incredible amount from them. And I think I have some kind of hybrid Spanish now what's left of it. It's waning because I don't use it enough, unfortunately, but I totally understand that. And I think, I think those are two great techniques that really everybody can use that that are that are in your in your position. Yes, I, I think it's interesting that you mentioned, um, you know, the Castellano because 
in our region, we speak this kind of Tex-Mex. And so when we were going to school and learning formal Spanish for our high school credits, that wasn't the Spanish we were learning. And right. so, you know, the message to us was, well, maybe our Spanish doesn't really count. And so that's a whole other issue that we also, you know, kind of have to deal with and face and let teachers know that, you know, we have our own regional language and, sure. and it's okay to acknowledge that. So it's not only okay, but it's perfectly normal. I mean, if you look, mm -hmm. if you study linguistics and understand how languages evolve, they don't evolve by somebody writing some rule in a book. They evolve by exactly time, people traveling and taking their language and traditions and customs with them. So there's so much more to it. Um, and I, it's just great that we're, you know, trying to get the word out on that because I think there's many people that don't, that don't see that. Um, okay. Another thing that you said when we last talked, um, and I and I agree with you, and I see it um, is that many of 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 today's teachers and even some of the students that that they work with um, have been affected by a subtractive model of schooling, even in districts like yours, where your teachers are in many cases a reflection of the students they serve. You know, they're they're Mexican Americans and they're serving many Mexican Americans. That's the gold standard, and that's what so many districts strive for, and they don't have it, and they think, well, if we had that, it would be so much better. But you still are seeing that there. So why? How can that be the case? And 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 what can we do to 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 begin resolving that subtractive model? You know, Stephen, I really think that goes back to you know we mentioned earlier teachers teach how they were taught, and so for a long time the message was you know English is the language of school, and and so it tends to be the language that predominates in a lot of lessons. And we often forget that even though we have transitional models of bilingual education, we can still uh, maintain those languages. So if I'm in a transitional late exit program or in a transitional early exit program, it shouldn't have to be that I completely abandon the Spanish. Let me find a way to incorporate in my curriculum and instruction that maintenance of the language by, you know, it could be a simple read aloud in Spanish. Hoy vamos a leer, you know, este cuento. Vamos a leer este libro. And, and another way we can do that is by supporting our students by using language as a resource. So we're not seeing language, you know, as a problem or just simply language as a right. But, you know, if I'm teaching English learners, what I can do is, you know, explicar lo que vamos a aprender hoy. Hoy vamos a aprender de sustantivos and then teach the concept in English and then Vamos a repasar, a ver, pescaron onda? And, and that's my, my famous question that when, you know, when I'm training teachers, pescaron onda? Revert to that kind of language when you're asking the child if they understood, because now that lets them know that you speak their language and that it's okay to, you know, figure out if you understood the content that was in English. And, you know, those of us in the field, we know where this this model comes from, from Freeman and Freeman, you know, the, the preview, view, review. And so that's one of the things that, you know, I feel that we can do so that we don't have this subtractive model of bilingualism. And we do send the message that even though we are teaching in English or viewing the new content in English, we're still supporting your learning by doing a lot of the background knowledge in Spanish and also even reviewing in Spanish at the end, allowing students to ask those questions, but you know, it, it's, it's going to take a lot of the modeling of how do we do that? What does that look like? And what does it sound like in the classroom? But you know, a lot of times, if, you know, if you, if you look at it from a teacher's lens, it's, 
oh my goodness, you know, I have two lesson plans now. I have to teach in two, in two languages. It's not about two lesson plans. It is one lesson plan, one objective, one content objective, one language objective, sometimes more than one, right? And then just finding a way to mesh both mm. of them together. Yeah, which again is that gold standard, right? Content and language mesh together. And and I think that that's the, the like you just sort of noted that that can be the biggest um, perceived challenge for teachers is is that those aren't two separate things. They're not two separate lessons. They come together. It's really it's really a hard thing to get across and to make easier for for teachers. So you, you just talked about the subtractive model. I want to kind of get into a little bit more um, jargon, for lack of a better term. We'll talk about some of that. Some of the uh, we'll use some of the some of the terms that we're all familiar with and kind of break them down. Talk with us a little about the difference between sequential and simultaneous bilinguals and, and how we should approach language education for both groups. Um, are, are we doing it the right way or is there still work to do in that area? And particularly in your context where you are, again, context being you're on the border, 90% plus people are, are bilingual. I think we, we definitely have a lot more work to do in this area. You know, the idea of being a sequential or simultaneous bilingual is not anything new in our field. But what we are looking at is determining if the programs that we're using are fit for the type of learner that we have. So if you think of your traditional transitional bilingual programs, those programs are intended for a child who is a sequential bilingual in that this child is, you know, knows one language, is exposed to one language, and then maybe up in, at the age of five is now exposed to a different language and starts learning that language. Usually we see that with our newly arrived English learners, right. but the idea is, and we see this everywhere, that a large group of our English learners in this country are U.S. born, and so Chances are, if they're U.S. born, they've been exposed to more than one language before mm -hmm. the age of five, which would make them simultaneous bilinguals. So as someone in this field who is, you know, overseeing a bilingual program, you know, it is our moral obligation to take a look at it and say, okay, the program that we have in place, is it truly serving the needs of our simultaneous bilinguals? if this is the bulk of our students. And so that's where we're at. And I would say that we're, we're looking at this not just in the context of our district, our region, but even at the state level, this is something, a conversation that we're having about how can we ensure that these transitional bilingual programs that are intended for a sequential bilingual, which I'm not gonna say that there's not any because you'll always have to some degree those sequential bilinguals, sure. but how do we ensure that our program, you know, serves the need of our simultaneous bilinguals? And, you know, the answer to that is just really making sure that we're providing an opportunity within our instruction for our students to, you know, there's this concept of bridging, bridging the two languages and helping students do sort of, you know, a contrastive analysis of, okay, in the native language, you know, this is what it looks like and sounds like. Now let's compare it to, you know, the second language that we're learning in English and have these kind of metacognitive conversations about language. You know, I want to get into that. That's my next point. But before we do, I mean, I think as you were speaking, I was thinking not only of your district, 
um, where you're seeing a lot of simultaneous bilinguals, but other districts as well who maybe will have more sequential bilinguals just because of maybe they have an influx of newcomers, right, who are exposed to English for the first time, or there are a variety of other things. I mean, a key element of this is 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 identifying those students, which can be more difficult than it seems. Like, so unless you identify those students and then understand what they need, how can you get to that next step? In your case, it seems like identifying them might be a little easier because you have, and correct me if I'm wrong, because you have mostly uh, those simultaneous bilinguals. But, but what are you doing to, to, to do that, to identify them first so that then you can differentiate and figure out what to do? I'm glad you're asking me this question because this is something that I was actually tackling a couple of weeks ago. So one of the charges was let's figure out how many simultaneous bilinguals we have. And so um, in looking at the data, we really don't have anything formal in place that'll tell us, you know, X number of students are simultaneous and X number of students are sequential. So what I found was I ended up doing a survey. I had, uh, you know, at the teacher level, just trying to figure out, you know, do you know your students enough to know about their linguistic repertoire, their backgrounds at home? And so this kind of year was tricky because it is virtual learning. Exactly, and just, yeah building a relationship with students is quite difficult. Although I will say that a lot of teachers, you know, I did say, go ahead and reflect on last year's students if you need to, to help, you know, answer the questions. But we found that it's, it really takes, you know, a, a community of people at the campus level to be able to give us that information. We were relying on counselors who knew the families, knew if there was over, older siblings in the families. But how to identify them, that is tricky for us. One of the things that we've thought of is, well, maybe we should look at the home language survey because the home language survey will clearly indicate. Um, but, you know, right now, I'm not sure that we have something concrete that I can tell you. This lets me know other than just the teacher's observation and their interactions with the family. Yeah, and I think that's okay. And I think that's a, that's, that's a great place to get that information. It's a little bit more qualitative than quantitative, right? And it requires some work and some understanding, but that work and understanding is work that needs to be done anyway, in terms of family engagement and community engagement. Um, so, but yeah, I'm glad I asked that question because I, I didn't want to just leave that hanging because there are people that, that are thinking, well, how do we identify? It's clearly a challenge, something that, that, uh, that there's room for, for improvement with. So I want to get into what you just talked about. You just talked about bridging and metalingual, uh, metalinguist, metalinguistic um, awareness. You, you talked about um, metacognition, which I think is something that people are thinking a lot about. It's really fascinating to me as well. Um, and having students sort of engage in conversations about language and think about you know the the two languages and, and how they're how they're using them. There are people I think that that feel like that takes up too much space in the student's brain, right? And probably a lot of those people are the same people who kind of tout this English only piece. So why is it so important in your point of view? And what role does it play in developing and maintaining language skills in, in both languages? Yeah, I'm glad you asked that because one of the things we're looking at is how do we build in this time into our, our block of instruction? Because, you know, it does take some time, but I'm a reading specialist and I know that one of the best ways to increase comprehension for reading is talking about what you read. And so, there's this um, you know, power that comes in with talking about something. It's almost like if you can write about something, 
then that means you fully understand it. So if you can engage in a conversation about something, that is a form of instruction because it's helping the student really kind of get, you know, this firm grasp on, on what, what is being talked about, what is being addressed in the classroom. So definitely the talking is very important. I, I, can't, I can't stress that enough. Not only is it going to help the student with their oral language development, but it's also just this kind of sense of ownership for the student, this agency of, I got this, like, mm -hmm. yes, this is, this is what I was thinking. And almost this, this affirmation for them as well is, as they're doing this internally and, and now it's being acknowledged you know, externally. It's no longer something that's just going on in my head. I, I, I know that you know, everyone else is thinking this, so let's, let's talk about it. Yeah, and you know what's interesting, what I was just thinking about as you were explaining that is, I was thinking about context. Um, where you are, it was said it a bunch of times, you have most of most people are, are, are bilingual. So it's kind of accepted and, and not, not accepted isn't the word I was looking for. It's kind of um, almost expected. Like that's just kind of the way that things are. So what's the big deal? But I'm, I'm in New Hampshire, right? And so I am a language person. I learned Spanish. And, but like the idea of bilingual schools, the idea of everybody being bilingual, the idea of being exposed to a second language when you're five years old, in, in my community, and this isn't something that I, I love my community, but this isn't something I'm in love with about it. it. It's a foreign, it's a total foreign concept. So I guess the point I'm trying to make is the idea of you having your students and your teachers discuss th that and talk about language and, uh, and, and, and really using that, the bridging and the, and the metacognition to think about what they've learned must instill some level of, of value and pride in what they can do, which, which might just be considered sort of a normal thing for where you are. Whereas if, if I, if any of my, you know, my neighbors went down to where you are and would they be amazed that these people, that everybody is bilingual. And I think there's like a disconnect there. Um, in, in, in my opinion, I think. No, no, you're, you're absolutely right. I think that, you know, what is normal for us, we just, you know, we live in our bubble and we feel that, you know, oh, this just happens everywhere. And so, you know, going back to one of the earlier questions about, you know, bilingualism not being something that is celebrated or, you know, we're going to speak Spanish in the classroom. I think that that that's connected here in that, you know, our, our teachers can do something very powerful that I don't quite know that they're even aware. Yeah, that's exactly is that right. Powerful, you know, and so I, I it's a form of, of validation for them to even hear that, you know what, okay, I've got this and I can do it. And, and so I, I tell them often, you know, if we go to other parts of the country, you don't understand, like you'll be snatched away. You are this Willy Wonka golden ticket that yeah. someone is going to want. And you think that your Spanish is not, you know, correct or formal, but you've got you know, a certain degree of bilingualism in that continuum. And so let's embrace it and let's use it because we have it and that's not available in, you know, everywhere. So you're definitely right. I think that, you know, and for me, as I'm speaking to you, that's something that I need to make sure that I, I highlight more and stress mm -hmm. and say, you know what, guys, we got this, you know, we, we've got A, B, C, and D, and we've, we need to leverage that. We need to take advantage of that uh, because in other areas, they, they want that and they don't have that. And I, I think that would be a beautiful thing for our students here on the border. Yeah, for sure. And just, you know, opening the lines of communication, 
you know, between students that live in different geographic areas, I think is, is a missed opportunity that we need to think more about. And that's, that's another conversation for another time. But as I think about my own children and the experiences they're having in comparison with the experiences that students in your district are having, I just think that there's so much that they could learn from one another and what a great way to build community in a time when we need that more than, more than anything. Um, but anyway, I'll, 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 I'll take myself out of that rabbit hole. Otherwise that'll be a whole other conversation. <laughs> Hi everyone, I'm Teddy Rice, president and co-founder of Elevation. The Highest Aspirations podcast was created to keep you informed and inspired around the issues that matter most to the students you serve. We'd love the opportunity to talk with you about how we can help strengthen your EL program. Reach out to us anytime at info at elevationeducation.com to set up a time to chat. Now, back to Highest Aspirations. Um, so last time we talked to you, you mentioned the idea, like you, you said that you, that part of your role was to kind of, um, bring out the elephant in the room, um, that, that, that many people seem to want to avoid. I think by now, given our conversation, people who are listening might have a good idea about what that elephant represents, but tell us more about, um, uh, about that and, and why it's so important to recognize it and confront it. What is it first? I mean, let's define it. So, you know, the big elephant in the room is that we're our own worst enemy. You know, I, I, I tell teachers, we are, we are hardest on ourselves. We do not give ourselves enough credit. And as you mentioned earlier, that power that we have that we don't even know. And, and because we don't even know, sometimes we don't even use it. And so I think that as a community of, you know, primarily Mexican Americans here on the border, we need to take some time to say, okay, you know, this is the current state of education. This is where we're at. And now let's, let's do something about it. You know, if we weren't happy about it, we, we didn't, you know, did it give me, was there some negative consequences, some repercussions, you know, are, are there some things that I've been affected by because of my own schooling appearances, experiences, excuse me, then, then we need to do something about it. And I think that, that elephant in the room is that it's, it's us, you know, it's not, you know, I, we speak whenever we go to conferences and we go out of the valley, it's, it's amazing how people are just food and awed by, cuando hablamos español y orale, you know, and it's like, whoa, people are taken aback, like what, what's just going on here. But, you know, I think that we need to say enough is enough. We're, we were not happy because it happened in the past. We're not happy. Let's heal. Let's heal this herida abierta. Let's mm. heal this open wound and say, okay, now it's up to us to let's get the sutures out. Let's let's mend this and let's make it better for these future generations and and create these uh, students who are proud of who they are and not embarrassed to speak their their language, their regional dialects, and and use you know their their invented. Spanglish terms, because who says that that word is wrong, right? right? Who, who, who defines what is right and what is wrong in terms of, of language? And I think, you know, for some that might be a, a bit on the radical kind of, whoa, what is, what is she talking about? You know, these kids are going to speak improperly, but I think it's about the form of, you know, that affective domain. If I really want students to embrace that second language 
and be true bilingual students, then I can't forget, you know, there's not only the cognitive and linguistic, but that affective part. Mm -hmm. And if I can bring that out in the student, I really feel that 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 is the key. And I think that that's what we need to do. I mean, it's, it's, it's up to us. We need to make that change. We need to decide and, and be okay with it and, and teach and say, pues, está bien, you know, si, si entra la directora o entra cualquier persona y me escucha hablando en español, pues van a saber por qué, van a entender por qué y no tengo que, que me dé miedo, que me vayan a decir algo, que, que es una escuela donde se habla inglés. There's a purpose. It's with intention and it's strategic. And, and I think that, you know, until we, we make that decision and we start doing that, you know, we'll we'll be able to address that elephant in the room. Mm -hmm. Y así podemos provocar conversaciones importantes, ¿verdad? Exacto. Yeah, that's key. I mean, if you are, you put yourself in an uncomfortable position, like the one you just explained, maybe in your school, that leads to conversations that can help, but you got to be brave. Um, so yeah, I think that in many ways, that brings us back to the, back to the beginning of our conversation, which I appreciate. Um, I don't want to leave this conversation though, without addressing uh, this isn't, I don't think, an elephant in the room because I think everybody knows about it, but there, there's this constant uh, barrage of media coming out about learning loss, um, and particularly as it pertains to English learners as a result of the pandemic and all the changes we've seen. So I want, I want to ask you, but I've been asking everybody that comes on about it um, because I'm really interested in getting people's opinions. If, number one, is it something that you have been able to, uh, to, to identify in your English learners? Um, and number two, what are some of the unique challenges and solutions that you've observed, in, again, in your context where you are, uh, that might be able to kind of help others who are listening? Yes, definitely. I mean, like anybody else in, in this country, we're, we're struggling with that too. And we're looking at closely at our English learners because we know that they're being affected. So we, we've We've got devices for every student, but sometimes having the device isn't good enough. You know, if they're using a hotspot and, you know, sometimes a lag time and, and hearing and visiting with teachers and hearing them say, you know, I've been talking for two hours and the kid is like, miss, you've been frozen for, for two hours. You know, that that's disheartening to hear that, you know, unfortunately that is happening with, with our students. So we've definitely been able to identify, you know, those, those losses and we see it in our data with- and those. You know, Sorry to interrupt, but those losses are a direct result of infrastructure issues, right? Issues with Wi-Fi. Correct. Correct. Yeah. Correct. Which brings you know, up huge equity questions. Exactly. And so one of the things that I'm really trying to stress and, and get moving, and I, I'm really proud of the teachers. They've done an excellent job, is really trying to, to get that engagement piece in. And that's true for all learners, really. But for English learners, I really want that speaking domain mm -hmm. to really be the highlight because that I feel is a domain that's going to be the most affected when we come back that we see, especially if we're working with English learners where they're the only child that that speaks, you know, a second language in the home. And so we've, we've tried, we you know, we're doing a lot of professional learning on how to use breakout rooms with Zoom, how to get, you know, that engagement piece, have that cooperative learning, that joint accountability and get the student, you know, to, to be active participants during the learning. We've also tried a lot of, um, you know, free open education resources where students can record themselves and teachers can kind of, you know, play that back mm -hmm, and hear mm -hmm. them speaking. So we're, we're trying, I, I don't know that we have all of the answers. I don't know that anybody does, but nope. we're definitely trying to, to get to get our English learners participating. And 
I'm really happy to share that when I do go into the room, you know, I always have the demographics of the classroom. And I, of course, I'm talking about a virtual walkthrough. And so I'll identify who the English learners are right, right, right away. And I'll see if they have the camera on or not. And if they don't have the camera on, are they chatting? You know, or I'll go to their breakout room where they're assigned. So just really, it, it's a lot of monitoring and keeping a close eye on them really is what it is. And then just, of course, offering your help, whatever, whatever they need. We've, we've uh, made a lot of parent contacts. We've had you know, parent meetings, mm -hmm. we've done home visits. I mean, you name it. Yeah. Just trying to get the engagement piece. Yeah. And so it sounds like at this point, you're still, uh, I don't want to say in kind of crisis mode or trauma mode, but you're, you're, you're trying to make sure that you're putting all the supports in that you can. And it sounds like you, and, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like you anticipate in the future, really knowing and understanding where some of the gaps are. But right now you're still just trying to make sure that they have all the supports that they need. Yes, exactly. We, we want to make sure that we're taking care of the now, but we're definitely already planning for the future. We've already been able to identify some gaps in specific content areas. We're seeing, you know, math and I know yeah, that was predicted, mm -hmm. you know, it's very skill based reading tends to be recursive. So that kind of carries over and there's a lot of repetition. So we're, you know, the content area strategists are already, you know, huddling up and saying, okay, what can we do to kind of you know, provide, you know, this maybe not guided reading support, well, guided reading support, yes, but guided math approach, if you will, for right. these, for these students, so we can address the losses that we already, you know, anticipate and are slowly seeing as the year progresses. Yeah, thanks for that. I mean, it's, it's, you know, I'm hearing a lot of similarities, um, you know, in terms of both where people are with identifying and mitigating the learning loss, where the problems are, math comes up, very, very frequently, not surprisingly. Um, and, you know, just just that teams are kind of being put in place now to, to determine what strategies will need to be uh, put in place moving forward. So appreciate that. Um, okay, let's transition to a couple of questions I like to ask everyone. These are kind of the fun questions. I Well, all the questions are kind of fun. I've really enjoyed the conversation, even though we're talking about some serious issues. Um, is there a book or a resource that's influenced you either personally or professionally that you'd like to share with anyone who's listening? Oh, there's, there's several of them. I'm a book lover. I, I'm a bookworm. I, um, you know, one that I read early on in my graduate work was the, um, the Latino Education Crisis by Gandara and Contreras. I absolutely loved that book. At first, I will tell you, it was a tearjerker and it was a very tough read. And I remember telling the, the professor, why did you make us read this depressing book? <laughs> and, and so she said, you know, okay it did its job. And what do you mean? Well, it fired you up. Now you got to do something about it. And so every time I'm talking to groups, I always bring up a lot of the ideas in the, the, edu the Latino um, education crisis by Gandara and Contreras, because I think they, they really hit on a lot of the factors that affect our English learners and things that, that we need to keep in mind. Uh, that, that's one of the books. Another one that I'm currently reading is Borderlands by Gloria Ansaldúa. I quoted her earlier. She's mm -hmm. the one who talks about, you know, La Rida Abierta. And although I'm not done with the book, it's a classic. It's been out for a long time. Um, but I, I know that it's going to be one of those that's really going to, you know, stick with me. And, and a, a third one, I mean, I told you I'm a book lover, right? <laughs> um, Con Respeto by Guadalupe Valdez. I... 
just, just the title will tell you alone, you know, hay que tratar con esto con respeto. And, and um, I think about that in terms of the parents of our English learners, because the easy thing is to shift blame and to say, oh, it's because the parents don't care. You know, and I refuse to believe that. Parents, it's not that the parents don't care. You know, we've got parents that are, they're working very hard. They may not make it to that parent meeting. And it's not because they don't want to be at that parent meeting. You may not be able to contact them by phone. And it's not because they don't want to answer the phone. It's because maybe it's been disconnected, you know? And so I think that as educators, we have to do everything con respeto. Mm -hmm. Everyone that we're that we're dealing with and that we're working with. And so that has kind of been the foundation for uh, a lot of um, what, you know, I do the work that I do. And personally, um, I really loved the book Educated. That was, you know, yep. my, I've read quite a bit of books recently, but that one just really hit me. And I, I mentioned that one because in that book, you know, you really get, el querer es poder, you know, where there's a will, there's a way. And so she found a way to, to get this education. And we see that with a lot of our English learners, but we also see where sometimes there is a will. And unfortunately, because of the environment, there is no way. And so I, I think that's important for us to recognize and talk about. And in its own way is its own elephant in the room, you know? That yeah. Yeah. Those are great books. So it's, it's, you mentioned four, two of them, I don't think have been mentioned. The Latino education crisis uh, has not been mentioned and Borderlands has not been mentioned. I have heard people that recommend Con Respeto, which I still haven't read. Uh, and Educated has been recommended. And I have read that one and can definitely say that that's a, that's a great book as well. I'll take a look at the others. And I always say on the podcast that I, I think part of the reason why I ask people this question is just so I can boost up my own library, but <laughs> hopefully others uh, benefit from it as well. Okay. Um, last question, Catalina, how can people learn more about the work you're doing? Is there a way they can contact you or learn more about the district or, how, you know, anything at all? So I live on Venus. I don't have social media. I haven't gotten on the bandwagon. I know that at some point I need to. That's okay. I, just, I will I say that you have, you have a tremendous amount to share. So I'm sure there are a lot of people listening that are using Twitter as their PLM that think, wow, I would love to, but anyway, that's yes, another time. No, um, uh, at some point, I promise I will I will get on it. But you know, if you if you want to reach out to me, my email address is calopez at wisd.us. And believe it or not, I, I get um, emails from people every now and then. And I'm like, wow, this person actually found me. Um, I had one from someone I think in I think it was North Carolina. They were reading my dissertation, which you don't think people will ever read. You think it's just this long, never ending piece of paper <laughs> or that no one will read. And it's like, oh, I looked you up and I found you. And so, you know, um, of course, I'm on our district website as well, um, which is uh, www.wist.us. If you go to our bilingual ESL department, you will definitely see um, contact information there for me as well. Perfect. Well, Catalina Lopez, this has been a really wonderful conversation. I really appreciate the perspective that you bring for, particularly for listeners like me who don't live on the border and have a different perspective. Um, and I, I, I really appreciate the work you're doing, um, really trying to change mindsets and instill um, the value that your 
teachers and your students and your entire community um, bring to to the to, to the country and to the world in general. I think it's so important. I think we hit on a lot of issues that don't just apply to you, um, but really anybody who's working with English learners or really working with languages in any way, which is really all of us. So appreciate the work you're doing. And once again, I reiterate that I appreciate you coming on during such a crazy weather event down there. I hope you stay safe and I hope it warms up soon. And this from somebody who is uh, living in, in 25 degree weather up here in New Hampshire. Wow. Thank you. Thank you for having me and and being able to to be the voice really of our region and our and our students and our teachers. Um, and thank you for the work that you do in allowing us to, to share what's going on in our world. My pleasure. Great. Thanks for listening to Highest Aspirations. If you liked our show, please be sure to join the ELL community at elevationeducation.com slash ELL community, where you'll find all the episodes of Highest Aspirations and other resources to help educators maximize the impact on their English language learners. Also, let us know how we're doing by writing a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts.